0: I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast. A podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through Hinch's six decades in the media. Darren Hinch, welcome to another episode of uh, That's Life. I think we're going to call this season three, by the way. So we've done (laughs) two seasons now, so we'll make this season three. This is episode two.
1: Yeah, we've done we've done more than sixty five broadcasts.
0: Almost is- a year and a half we've been going. Yeah, yeah. And you that- know what's good about it? It, it actually sort of, um, I guess, it is a uh, 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 a record of all of the things that happened in Australia in the last eighteen months, but also our memories of uh, things. Prior to the last 18 months. 20,
1: 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. I enjoy it when I get uh, emails from uh, listeners who suddenly say, you guys go off on tangents, and I well, which we love doing because, and somebody said, it sounds like I'm eavesdropping on a, the- Phone on a conversation in a coffee shop. Well, well let's, for, I like that.
0: For me, it's picking your brain, Darren, because you're <laughs> you're a bit older than me—not a lot older—but you've lived quite a full and, uh, you know, fruitful life, and you've had many, many experiences. I'm I'm interested in your ideas on things and and and, uh, and what happened to you and what you and why you've done things. I, I want to just quickly touch on Prince Andrew before we go mm-hmm. any further, mm-hmm. uh, Darren. Um, with, with the the stuff with uh, Jeffrey Epstein, um, it, it looks like uh, uh, it, it's you know he, he's 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 in a fair bit of trouble, and, and I read that uh, the Queen's looking at uh, taking away his title, whatever that means, and how that affects him, I'm not sure.
1: Well, things this gets to air, um, court more court procedures will have happened in New York with. Uh, uh, the woman who's, who's got a civil suit against him. Uh, I actually thought in recent days the way things have happened with the um, with the Maxwell case and uh, her being convicted, and then things have transpired. Two jurors have come forward now and said that they were sexually abused uh, when they were young, which I'm not sure was actually revealed in their jurors' tick box. Right. Yeah,
0: they were asked about it. Mm beforehand, because obviously wrong, yeah. if they had been, it would may, somehow affect their uh, view of things.
1: Well, and one of them has come forward and said that uh, he did um, convince some of the other jurors that uh, that people do have faulty memories sometimes, even though stuff has really happened. Now, I thought that could give um, Andrew a bit of an, an out. Uh, I mean, don't get me right, I don't think he's guilty. I think he's bulldust about that photo with the young woman uh, was, was photoshopped, which to me, pathetic because you've got um, Maxwell standing behind him. He's got his arm around her waist. It doesn't seem to me like it was photoshopped. But the thing that got me most of all that may give him a bit of a an out, a bit of encouragement, is that um, it turned out in recent weeks that his main accuser, Joffre, was, was, was paid uh, half a million American dollars by Epstein to shut up. Um, and that's nearly three quarters of a million Australian dollars. Now she was, she signed a deal with Epstein, uh, 10 years ago, uh, in which he admitted there had been, uh, sexual misconduct and there had been sexual trading, etc. I'm not, I'm, I haven't got the words exactly right, but in that, in that agreement, when she took the money, she also agreed not to pursue any future, um, court action against um Epstein or against anybody else, any of his friends, any of the other people who flew on the Lily to Express. And I thought that would give Andrew an out. But the judge has read that letter uh, and as we speak, I haven't seen the judgment yet. Um, but the judgment judges said virtually in the early days that well, two people agreed to that and one of them is dead Uh, it's not for the court to decide whether that should be real or not real so we shall we shall see
0: well the letter doesn't or the agreement doesn't mention prince andrew by name at all either no and and uh you know i I just wonder whether you can throw away any right you might have in that way uh anyway i guess they're they're things that will be decided by the judge
1: apparently the queen's deciding that she won't fund his legal stuff anymore. And he had had to sell some expensive place he owned with Fergie and some chalet in Switzerland. Um, He's on the outer, uh, obviously, with the other royals. I mean, can you imagine if you were Kate Middleton and you've got young kids growing up and you look at your relative who allegedly has been bonking a a 17-year-old girl thanks to Jeffrey, what's his name, Epstein, who provided her.
0: What's just, what's disturbing about it is the way it just is the, syst- the systematic nature of it. You know, it was sort of something that was ongoing. Uh, quite a number of people were involved, quite a number of high profile people. There's a guy who was head of the Reserve Bank in the US, or, anyways, William. a very, he's a professor of economics that's also been mentioned in all this. Bill Clinton's name you. keeps coming up as you being.
1: Think, think this through, Tony. Why would Donald Trump or Bill Clinton go on the Lolita Express to an island in the Caribbean six, seven or eight times if something wasn't going on? You don't go there for meals.
0: It's disturbing. Um, uh, We haven't been doing a lot of it on our news. well, Well, day by day you know stories mm. we did the, the actual verdict and things like that and and uh, I noticed on Twitter people saying you know you're not reporting it because it's uh, you're hiding it, it's, uh, mm. it, it, it it's, it's some sort of Murdoch conspiracy and uh, you know we're, we're protecting important people and it, it's nothing like that at all um, uh, <laughs>
1: But I, I can't. I can understand this Murdoch conspiracy extends apparently to you, to me, to Channel Nine, which is not owned by Murdoch. To well, I've never worked who, for
0: Murdoch. I, I've got. I've never met him. I've never met any of the family. I don't, I don't know. You know, there's no connection whatsoever. He wouldn't even know I exist.
1: My connection with Rupert Murdoch is I once went to a wedding of one of his members of his family his, his family I was the other side. It was the John Torv and the other side, the radio side. And I met Murdoch once in my life at at a wedding, and that's it. That's it. And, I mean, Fairfax is owned by Channel 9 now. It's not owned by the Age, the Sydney Morning Herald are not owned by Murdoch. It's not this Murdochia thing. If I'd still been in the Senate, I would not have had a bar of this new Murdoch um, Senate investigation. I think it's rubbish.
0: The other thing I cup all the time is, you know, I'm being told what to do by Peter Costello. (laughs) I've never met Peter Costello. I actually waited in line behind him while he was trying to get into the building at Fairfax uh, here at Media House and he was a bit frustrated because there was so much red tape that he had to go through. uh, Uh, I've
1: probably met, haven't met Peter Wastellar in the past 10 years. I I did know him way back when he was in Parliament. Um, But look, these conspiracy theories is like, how could you control all the media? Now, this is with the anti-vaxxers as well. How can you control all the media? I mean, Channel Seven doesn't talk to Channel Nine before they put their news on out at night, but, but the Age doesn't. The Age does talk to the Sydney Herald because they're owned by the same people. But they don't. The Age editor doesn't call the editor of the Herald Sun and say, "Watch a page one headline today." It's just they're independent. They are independent.
0: And they try to outdo each other, which that's is what they should which is what they should do because that's yeah. what uh, competition in the free press is, is is all about, which is vital, isn't it because I agree. Um, you know information is uh, vital and it needs to get out there Darren uh, we touched it on in the last podcast uh, the fire outside the old Parliament house building which destroyed these century old doors that uh, people like Jim scullen and um, uh, Gough Whitlam, Malcolm Fraser, uh, the, the wartime prime ministers, Robert Menzies walked through, destroyed stupidly through some sort of smoking ceremony.
1: No, no, that was that was a blind. It wasn't the smoking ceremony. I mean,
0: well, was they, they suggested yeah, I mean, it was. They, yes, they
1: did. A, yes, they did originally. Said a, it was a smoking ceremony. Wrong. No, not true. If you actually watch the footage, you saw some man who's since been charged. I'll be a bit careful here actually lighting the doors, setting a light on them had nothing to do with a smoking ceremony. You know, I'm, I'm often skeptical about them at times, but they, um, this, they, they had a smoking ceremony, but they had nothing to do with whoever set fire, allegedly set fire to the doors. It was a despicable thing. And the fact that a, a Victorian green Senator never elected, appointed, to reach, I think, to replace so Richard Dillatale. We're talking
0: about Senator Lydia Thorpe.
1: Yeah, I don't use her name. Um, she she came out and put out the most disgusting tweet, virtually saying this is, you know, this is like championing the idea that the doors are burned down because it was setting a flame to colonial Australia. I, I found it. I didn't tweet about it. I just sat at my house and thought, that's disgusting. Well, that this is a,
0: a lady who uh, is being paid for by the Australian taxpayer to be a senator. Mm-hmm. And she's virtually cheering the burning down of what is the centre of democracy in Australia, the old Parliament House. This That's is true. how decisions are taken in Australia, in that building.
1: Um, Tony, I'll to interrupt. But... I've, since we've got the new Parliament House, we've had it since what, 1988, but I've been several times when I was a Senator back to the old Parliament House and stood in there and soaked in the, the history of the place. Um, generally, it is, it, it is part of Australia, it's part of our history. And for a Senator to be rejoicing that somebody's trying to burn it down is despicable.
0: I actually love the old Parliament House more than the new Parliament House. I know the new Parliament House works better.
1: Yeah, journalists do. No, it doesn't work better. It works better for the politicians and it's more comfortable. And I had my, my suite at the Senate was probably as big as the Prime Minister's in the old one. But what the old Parliament House had was not the detachment the new one has. Journalists and politicians bumped into each other. They talked in the corridors. They went to the members' bar, which doesn't exist in the new one, and people got loose-tongued and spilled stories. Um, that's all gone uh, now. It's a very clinical building. It's huge. I, I would, when I was a senator, I would probably walk maybe eight or ten k's a day in that building. It was that big.
0: I have been to the old Parliament House in the Prime Minister's office and the old Cabinet Room that, uh, which was just mm-hmm. off the Prime Minister's uh, office. Uh, so I know what that's like. It was all wood paneling and uh, not as large as you, you, you would expect it to be. You know, for a leader of a country. What's the new uh, Parliament House Prime Minister's office like? Have you been in there? Describe oh, yeah, that yes. for us.
1: Yeah, many times. Oh, quite big, quite big. Um, I remember Malcolm Turnbull had some beautiful artwork in there. Uh, uh very expensive artwork, which he, he from his, his own. And I also see recently he got, he's got COVID now. So that joins, uh, Peter Dutton, Barnaby Joyce, Malcolm Turnbull. Lieutenant said the list grows how we've survived without it. So far sunshine. I do not know, mm. but no, the, the new, I mean, um, uh, I've been in Morrison's office, um, it's not quite it's the same same office that uh, that obviously the pm has the turnbull had but it, it's not as is opulent in terms of artwork I, I would say uh then there's another room sort of an anti-room where prime ministers often meet with other people uh, not in his personal office but in a sort of an anti-room and i've met there several times with the pm but no uh, it's look it's 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 a hugely expensive and expensive and expensive place i remember when remember when it was first built I remember going on radio though. So I think my memory is right. So they, this is 1988 and they spent $400 on ashtrays.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it opened on the 9th of May, 1988. Is
1: that right? Yes. That's right. Yes. I, Look, it, it's a magnificent building. I must admit, every day driving up towards it gave me thrills. I mean, from my hotel. Driving up the road to, to Parliament House with that amazing uh, flagpole and whatever, it, as a senator, it gave you a thrill I can't describe otherwise. It was just magic. And coming sometimes, flying in on a Sunday from, from Melbourne and going straight to Parliament House, or even just driving past it, 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 was, it was magic. And it's a big, deal, big
0: now, deal. Now, from your office to the Senate where you sat, uh, how far is is that? To oh, you?
1: I was very lucky. They gave me uh, because I got a, a bad knee. My uh, so they didn't, they didn't let you walk as far. <laughs> no, well, in a mountaineering accident, I broke my knee, so I, I wore a brace on it. Um, they found, luckily, I managed to get a, the office. I was given temporarily. They let me keep, and it was only about a three-minute run uh, from the uh, from the chamber. Because the bells and ring someday, when you have to vote, don't,
0: don't you? You're, you're in your yeah, office.
1: You're in your office and the bells ring and the, the bells and the red light goes off in your office and you sprint. You know, I, I never missed a vote. I never abstained. I never missed one. I never had the doors shut in my face. Came close sometimes. I was in Bill Shorten's office once and I had to run from there across to the Senate, which is from the his office in, in the House when he was leader to the Senate. It was a bloody... Was a long sprint, I tell you, and and it was over a bill that was my bill, so I was being voted on, and I had to be there. And I just literally dived through the door into my seat at the last second.
0: And and if if you don't make it, they 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 got no mercy for you. You, you oh, no. you're out.
1: Your you vote's gone. Yeah, and some people, like to his discredit, and I liked him a lot. Nick Xenophon um, would sometimes lead his people out of the house as soon as the bells rang, so they wouldn't have to vote, they wouldn't have to explain. Now, I've
0: got a hazy memory of uh, incidents that happened where MPs uh, tried to get in even though they'd been locked out. Um, well, well
1: Abbott, I remember the famous one when Abbott tried to get out and he's banging on the door and the doors had closed. You can't get in or out. Once the four minutes is up and there's an egg timer on, on the clerk's desk and as soon as the bells ring, they turn the egg timer upside down and the sand runs through the through the sands of time. That runs through. And occasionally once you're in there and if they have another bill or another bill or another vote, it'll be one minute because you're already in there. So it's four minutes if you're anywhere in the building, which ain't that long sometimes if you're a long way away, if you having- people might be having lunch or something if the bells ring bingo you go because you
0: guys are in your office doing your own work doing your own business but you actually know what they're debating so it's not like you arrive in the in the in the at the senate and you say well well what what are we voting here which way am i going to go you you know what's being debated
1: I'm glad you raised that because people see pictures often of an empty senate somebody's giving a speech and there's only about two three people there right i said where are you or why aren't you working Well, you've got the Senate stream feeding into your office, right? And you're there doing other work. You're working on stuff and you know exactly where it's coming up to. You know when the bills are coming up. You know who's going to speak next. You get a list of who the speakers are and... I mean, in the early days, my early months in the Senate, because I was fascinated, I spent more time in the Senate than anybody. I sat there for hours and hours and hours. My staff used to laugh. I said, "Well, I'm just trying to learn, you know. I'm trying to get the feel of the place." And, but, but even though we're not in the Senate, we are listening to the Senate all the time. You're, you're, you're across it all, and you know when a vote's coming up. You've already decided who you're going to vote for and how you're going to vote. So it's it's, it's it is under control.
0: Tell me about lunchtime or, or dinner time. Is, is there a a restaurant that you guys go to where you're all, you know, you're sitting next to the Prime Minister or you're sitting next to you know, Josh Frydenberg. Well,
1: and- well, well you, never, you never leave the building when you're sitting. Um, there is a member's dining room uh, which i'd occasionally go to not very often uh, I, i'd eat a sandwich i somebody pick up a sandwich and have a sandwich at my desk for lunchtime I wouldn't know. you
0: want to go to the members' dining room just sit there and have you know like uh i don't know what, what, a beautiful no, meal not, that they organize and yeah
1: no, not at, it's quite cheap no not at lunchtime. I never, I never did never did occasionally i'd go to the members' dining room at night time but between sittings between six and 730 I'd duck up there for an hour with some of my staff and talk about what we we're doing that night, uh, and often you'd sit till you know 10 or 11. So uh, six till seven thirty break was not bad because you'd been there. You'd been there since 7 a.m. or 6.30. You
0: know? And people think that sort of like the, you make an enemy with the, you, the, the, the opposite side of, of, of the political spectrum to you, but <clears throat> there's some good friendships that, that have been forged, uh, even uh, if someone's liberal and someone's Labour. In fact, you probably hate your own side more than you hate the, the other side. <laughs> well,
1: there have been some in have been like... Um, there have been friendships like that although Pete, what's name, paul keating once said uh, if you want a friend in canberra get it <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I didn't make i didn't make any friends uh I, I made some enjoyable um acquaintances i enjoyed the company of of penny wong um scott ryan who was, who was the president when i was there for a while um, um yeah a few people i made made it not friendships but made very pleasant relationships with <laughs> Hey, well, now listen, we, before we run out of time, yeah, we're, let's, we're, let's, let's get on to, to Sidney Poitier, because yes. I'm very keen to talk about he's
0: him. He died. He's 94. He was a wonderful, wonderful guy, born in the Bahamas. Uh, I read Mo- a bit about him. He moved to
1: Florida. He became to America when he was a child, from
0: memory. Yeah, he, he had a very uh, beautiful, dignified presence about him, didn't he? Like quiet. The man,
1: sorry, the man was class. Sidney Poitier was class. Uh, I know they keep saying he was a trailblazer because he's the first black man to win an Oscar, which is true, but there's much more than that. And the man, and all his life, I, I, I did some reading back on him uh, after I heard he died, and he made a he went, had a press conference now, in 1967, okay? Now, that's a long time ago when black people who were not going to school in the same schools as white people in, in parts of the South in America in 67, despite the, uh, the moves by Bobby Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. But anyway, he may, had this press conference, which oh, I went back and dug out and watched again. And he said, he complained to, a, a, he'd asked a question by an, an earnest journalist. Right. And he said, I'm paraphrasing. Why do you ask me such one dimensional questions? Why do you have to ask me about the the, his word, the negro ness of my life? He said, I'm an artist. I'm a man. I'm an American. I'm a contemporary. Pay me the respect I am due. Now, this is a black man in 1967. I find it one of the most powerful comments I've seen in a long time.
0: Mm. Well, I, people would remember him from uh, Guess Who's Coming T- to Dinner. I think he plays yeah. a doctor, and uh, he, he's going to meet his fiance's family, and of course, uh, they don't know he's black until he arrives. Turns up, yeah. And then he played uh, the teacher in two films. Spencer oh,
1: Tracy and Catherine
0: Hepburn. Correct. I think. Correct. Right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Two Sir with Love is a movie I always loved. Watched it many, many times. First time I watched it, it left an impression on me. He's a teacher in uh, some sort of uh, working class area yeah, of London, Britain, I think, yeah. in Britain. And he's teaching the girls how to be women. Right. And uh, that, that yeah. was really great.
1: Uh, One it, my my, my favourite movie, um, which many of you wouldn't have seen, was a movie called The Defiant Ones made with Tony Curtis
0: no, and not seen it and
1: and and Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis escaped from jail manacled together and this is it's early 60s so here's a a black man and a white man trying to save each other and escape from jail it was a fan- um, he got nominated for an Academy. Award. He didn't get the Academy Award for that one, but he got nominated for it. It was it was a fantastic film. They're yeah, called the Defiant Ones.
0: Wasn't he uh, the, the representative for the Bahamas on the uh, United Nations, who he, he was a the delegate to the United yes, Nations? So. Yes,
1: he was. And the uh, the the current lead head of the Bahamas gave a beautiful eulogy to him uh, after word came out that he died. He um. It was extraordinary because I've been writing about food. This is a diversion, but it involves Sydney Poitier. Um, I've been writing about food lately in my new diet book. Um, Piers Morgan, the, the journalist, right? Once asked uh, Sydney Poitier's wife, Joanna, he met her at a function and he said to her, what are the best and worst things about being married to an icon? And she said, well, I can tell you the worst thing. When we first started dating, I cooked him a really good meal. And ever since then, every night for 48 years, he's expected me to cook him a really great meal. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 when, when Poitier was told that, he said, yeah, it sounds like a good arrangement to me. <laughs>
0: you you never met him darren in no, your travels
1: I, no i didn't no i didn't know I didn't.
0: anyone who knew him at all he was personally
1: a very, no, he was a very, he was a very a, a truly handsome man oh jackie weaver just adored him thought he was a great act She's one of the greatest actors in the world she thought he's a fantastic actor um he was he always looked so peaceful in a way he always had such class and such style um and very handsome man um it reminded me in a funny way, in a totally different way, I should say, that the most handsome, well, the most handsome man I've ever met in my life was Muhammad Ali. And they both had that certain, je should sais say quiet, you know, they both had that certain personal style and confidence, which I found fantastic.
0: I have a link to Muhammad Ali, Darren, which I don't think I've ever told you, but I'd like to just quickly tell you now. <clears throat> my next-door neighbour where I used to live Uh, was from Ghana. Uh, Mm -hmm. Her dad was one of the richest people in Ghana. She just lived in suburban Melbourne. And our dog used to go under the fence into her house. And uh, that's how I got to know her. And then her husband, who was pretty well known uh, in government, uh, public service, uh, had a stroke. And very badly uh, affected by the stroke. So uh, he, he was in a wheelchair and every week I would take him for a walk for about an hour before I went to work right. uh, and anyway I got talking to my next door neighbour and she told me this wonderful story Muhammad Ali went to Ghana after he beat Sonny Liston in 1965 to become the world a boxing champion.
1: When he stood there looking down, saying, Get up, get Correct. up, get up. Famous
0: <laughs> photograph, famous photograph. Anyway, yeah. uh, my neighbor was a young lady and uh, with her friends went to the hotel to see if they could meet Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali saw her and got his brother Rudolph to go over and talk to her because he wanted to talk to my neighbor. I'm not going to mention her name because she's very mm. private. And uh, she didn't go. Rudolph went back anyway. Rudolph then went back to pick her up. He grabbed her, picked her up, lifted her up, and took. He said, "If, if, if the mountain won't go to Muhammad, Muhammad won't go to the mountain. The mountain will go to Muhammad." So he picked <laughs> her up and took her there. Uh, they courted. They got engaged. Wow! Yes, uh, he sent her uh, all sorts of letters and stuff over the years. Uh, eventually, my neighbour didn't want to go and live in America. In fact, she didn't even really like Muhammad Ali. She liked his brother, Rudolph. <laughs> Could you believe? And, wow. uh, and uh, uh, Muhammad married uh, somebody else. And I saw a photograph of the woman that he married, his first wife, looked just like my neighbour.
1: Isn't that a a great story? It is a
0: great story. Now, my neighbour is very private. When he died, I did tweet something like that and she got a little bit upset because she didn't want uh, that. She said it was my story.
1: You didn't identify her?
0: I didn't identify her at all, no, no. Um, But she lives in Melbourne. She's a wonderful lady. I do talk to her on the telephone a bit. Um, Her husband passed away. Ten years he was uh, in a wheelchair, uh, Darren, uh, and she looked after him at home. She's a wonderful, wonderful lady. And the family gave me the honour of uh, helping carry his coffin out of the church when he uh, passed away. Uh, So um, that's my link with Muhammad Ali.
1: Well, my best Muhammad Ali story uh, is that I went to the the Madison Square Garden and watched uh, Muhammad Ali fight um, Joe Frazier for the heavyweight title, right? Yeah, it was an amazing night. You saw all these pimps arriving there with their hookers and they're all wearing these huge beaver coats and stuff. And it was, and there were, sh- there were actors and showbiz people and Paul Newman and whatever. And we're watching this fight between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. And I'd interviewed Frazier in Philadelphia before the actual fight. And he really was a, a beast of a man uh, in my view. But anyway, Frazier won the fight. Ali stood there and said, hit me with your best shot. Put his hands up in the air and hit me with your best shot. And in the end, Frazier won on points. But the winner spent three weeks in hospital with a bleeding liver. <laughs> and the loser went home. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was extraordinary to, to and I also watched uh, watch Ali fight Jimmy Ellison down in Houston at the Astrodome and he was he was magic to watch him the you old know, float like a butterfly sting like a bee he was just the most extraordinary athlete I mean he threw his Olympic medal into the river because he was black and uh, he had everything he, really and he, he had did. the
0: ability to just be funny. And talk, yeah. um, uh, you know. I remember when he when he didn't want to go to Vietnam, and they uh, they put him in jail, uh, yeah. uh, and they uh, stripped him of his uh, um, world championship. Yeah. And uh, he said, "I ain't got no beef with no Viet Cong. They ain't That's done right. nothing I, to me.
1: I ain't got no beef with no Viet Cong." Yeah, he yeah. and I mean, for three years he was without his title, and he won it back. You know, um, he, wasn't, he was probably one of the most extraordinary athletes, I'd say, we have ever seen in our lifetimes.
0: And uh, his funeral, uh, what I love about, we talked about Bert Newton's funeral a couple of uh, months ago. His funerals have now become real celebrations of someone's life. And, and they're just wonderful to see. I mean, the Muhammad Ali funeral, if anyone's got any um, uh, time to go on YouTube and see the speech by uh, Billy Crystal, who was good friends with him, Magnificent. Just
1: yeah. hey, you're quite right. Talking of funerals because I know we, we, we always run out of time. Uh, Betty White, one of the most amazing actresses we've ever seen pass through our lifetimes. Um, and I only raise it now because I loved her in Golden Girls and, uh, and and Mary Tyler Moore show on that old and those things. But Betty White, she died only a few days before her 100th birthday, and two things people ran the, uh, the old dewey beats truman headline from the st louis post dispatch because and it didn't happen because the new york the, the people magazine put out the day before she died the new york mag- a, a people magazine put out a front page cover of betty white makes a hundred <laughs> and, and she didn't <laughs> yes and she didn't but but um I've made a donation to animal liberation, uh, in her name, because she was one of the great animal, animal protectors for decades and decades and decades. And in America for to commemorate her 100th birthday, what would have been, they've done a wonderful thing. They're asking every Betty white supporter to give $5 to an animal welfare group yep. anywhere in the world, five bucks. What, I think I'm going to work and will raise millions of dollars. I, I, I intend to give more, but uh, I think just so simplistic. And she was the most wonderful entertainer.
0: What a wonderful privilege to live such a long life too. Uh, I had an yeah. auntie, yeah. my Zi Angelina, She lived to 101, Darren. Wow. My dad's sister. She died on her birthday. 101. It was quite amazing. And she was fit, healthy, and optimistic right up until six weeks before she got ill. She used to go to Queensland and have holidays with... She had four daughters, and they had... Uh, that family just had uh, daughters. They, they were the most placid, <laughs> gentle family, I think because of all the females that were in that family. And there's a wonderful photograph of my Z Angelina with all of her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren filling the driveway of this house in Thornby. There would have been a hundred of them there. Wow. Have you known anyone to get to a hundred, Darren,
1: um, in your family? I don't know. No, my 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 dad got to ninety four. My grandma got to ninety six. My auntie got to ninety five. My dad would say, "I'm ninety two, not out. Not a bad innings, boy." <laughs> um, but speaking of that age and whatever, I had some sad news, and I don't want to end on a downer, but it's true. A dear friend of mine, and a uh, and he's my radio producer on TGb. His name's Richard Sleeman.
0: Yes, I remember Richard. You remember name? Richard, yeah. Yes.
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Fly, his nickname was, um, he got motor neurone disease, right? you Now I watched Neil Denhar and I admire the, the stamina and the guts of that man, how he keeps going because I'm told, I've done a bit of research, that motor neuron, your brain doesn't go. You know, you still mm. got your brain, but your, your, your mobility goes, your speech goes. And uh, Richard, my dear mate, we covered Port Arthur together. As a matter of fact, um, for which we won a big award. But um, he tried to put out a Christmas message to his friends, and he did it verbally, and I couldn't even understand him trying to say his own name. Mm. And I know, in his, and I know, in his in his head his brain's still there wonderful he said he goes out in the street and people think he's crazy um it's not until he gets to hospital and hands his card over saying I'm, I've got him you know motor neuron that the staff realize that he's he, he, that the heads the brain's still ticking you know uh, which is terrible it's so sad so sad
0: yeah, it reminds me of um when I took my neighbour for a walk in a wheelchair and uh, he was in the wheelchair and people would come up to me because I sort of knew a few neighbours and they would talk to me but not talk to the person I was pushing in the wheelchair. And I sort of didn't think about it until it was said to me that um, he was, you know, not, not... you know, he'd find that a bit difficult because… He's it,
1: still there. He's still a person. He, He's still there.
0: Yeah. And here's this man that was quite senior in, uh, you know, his, his profession, um, uh, having to, to cope with that. Darren. Tell, tell me,
1: before just before you go. Two two seconds. In a very small way, years and years ago I had vocal polyps and wasn't allowed to speak for two weeks, okay? And so people would talk in my, in, in my stead. People would come up to me and not look at me but look at the person with me and talk to them as if I didn't exist, as yeah. if I was – like he was telling me now about that man in the wheelchair. It's like I didn't exist. I was – and I'm just saying, hey, i hey, I'm still here. I can hear you. <laughs> but they treated me like I was a cretin and uh, nobody spoke to me. And it was I, only for a brief, very brief time I had a taste of what, what it's some like. handicaps people go through.
0: Yep. Yeah, well, Mr Hinch, enough. it's hmm. uh, been uh, a pleasure again to begin season three and uh, let's uh, hope that 2022 is, um, well, let's hope we make it to the end of 2022. Well,
1: let's, let us hope so. All right, mate. Bye-bye.
0: Ciao.